chapter 6. Our text this morning, I would dare say, is one of the most perplexing passages in this entire epistle. In fact, several of you have already asked me, what do you plan to do with Hebrews 6? What do you believe it is teaching? Is the writer of Hebrews actually saying that a real Christian can lose his salvation? I'll address that question as we go forward. But as you notice, the title of my message this morning is apostasy. Now, what does that word mean? It's not a word we use very much. But apostasy, to commit apostasy, means you renounce or you abandon a religious belief. An apostate is one who once professed faith in Jesus Christ, but he has renounced that profession. He has abandoned his Christian profession. He's fallen away, not simply a backsliding, but a total departure. And ultimately, he's lost. So the question arises, is this text teaching that a real Christian can commit apostasy? Is this text teaching us that a real Christian can lose his salvation? Before we jump immediately to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which I strongly believe, as well as the preservation of the saints, I want us to seriously consider the warning that we find here in Hebrews chapter 6. Now, just a few initial observations before we dive into the text and seek to unpack it. First of all, it is similar to many of the uh, warnings that have gone before. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Therefore, we must pay much more or much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. The warning against drifting away. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So there's a warning of drifting away, of falling away. Chapter 4, verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, falling short of entering into that promised rest of heaven. So it's similar to some previous warnings, but it's also different. And it's different, it's distinct in this way. In the previous passages, we have these admonitions. Pay attention. Take care. Uh, 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 strive to enter. There's no direct admonition in these verses to do anything. This passage uh, is simply stating a fact of the utter hopelessness of one who's committed apostasy. Now, there is a logical connection to the previous verses. That word for means you're continuing the thought, and we do have admonitions there. In verse 1, leaving the elementary doctrine of Christ, going on to maturity. This we will do if God permits. The connection seems to be we will go on to maturity if God permits for it's impossible for those who have fallen away. So there's a connection there if God permits. But in the case of one who has committed apostasy, it's impossible, it says, to restore such a one to repentance. And that ought to add a sense of urgency to that admonition in verse 1. Press on to maturity. Don't coast. If you coast, you might drift, and if you drift, you might fall away. But I want you also to notice the pronouns used in this text as well as in the earlier warnings. In the the previous warnings, we must pay closer attention. uh, Lest you are leading, an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from living God. Let us strive to enter that rest. Let us press on to maturity. But here, we find it's all in the third person. It goes, it speaks of those who do this, they, and, 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 and to their own harm. And then in verse 9, he says, he goes back to the we. Uh, I'm confident of better things for you. Or we're confident of better things for you, things in keeping with salvation. 
So he's not giving us a hypothetical situation, but he's not necessarily addressing the, the readers directly and saying, I'm concerned about this for you. He's saying, I believe, uh, uh, be careful. But he's deliberately vague. He's not saying, this is something you're in imminent danger of. But he is saying, make sure this does not happen to you. So the text before us this morning is, is something of a commentary on people who commit apostasy. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a description. What is it that happened? Or how is it possible? Now, if the doctrine of the perseverance of saints is true, and I believe that it is, I do believe uh, what some people call once saved, always saved. Uh, I believe if you're truly converted, God is going to see you through to the very end. You're going to persevere because God will preserve you. I believe that with all my heart. Which means it's true that a Christian, a real Christian, cannot lose his salvation. So this text must be describing people who were never truly converted. You'll see that more as we go forward. Five points in this text that I want to draw out this morning. First of all, there's the, declar- the description of their experience. Five uh, descriptives of the kind of experiences they can look back to uh, that seem to indicate faith, but in fact really don't. Secondly, a declaration of their apostasy. They've fallen away. Thirdly, the diagnosis of their hopeless condition. It's impossible for them to be restored to repentance. And then the reasons for that hopelessness, as we'll see. And then finally, a hopeful reassurance for the readers in verse 9. So, let's look first of all the description of their experience, and we find five, uh, five descriptives of what has taken place in their lives. Notice in verse 4, though, it starts with a statement of impossibility. It is impossible, but then he doesn't tell you what's impossible. And he doesn't pick that up until later on in verse 6. But first he gives us, it's impossible. In the case of people who these five things are true about. These are experiences that a person can have and still not be truly converted. And as we read them, it certainly sounds like someone who has come into a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. It sounds like a person who has experienced genuine conversion. But in reality, that's not the case. They've never truly received a new heart, never truly fully trusted in Christ. So let's look at these five experiences briefly. First of all, those having once been enlightened. You know, the Scriptures describe the unbeliever as being is, is living in darkness. He's spiritually blind. And that, that idea of being enlightened means the light has come on, that the veil has been removed. Uh, in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, he says that the Lord, has, uh, the Lord Jesus has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so that term enlightened seemed to indicate a gospel transformation. And in the case of those whom he is describing, maybe the light sort of came on, but not in a saving way. Kind of like the parable of the sower. You remember the rocky soil. The, the seed falls on different kinds of soils. It falls on this rocky soil. And the seed springs up quickly, but it has no root. And so tribulation and difficulty come, and it rapidly, it quickly uh, dries up, withers away. Whatever word had been received took no root in their life, and so they didn't last. And I think that's that enlightened. They, 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 they saw, they, they heard, they saw, and they said, oh, I'm in. But it really didn't take root in their lives as we might have hoped. 
The second descriptive uh, here is they have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, there's debate about what the heavenly gift might mean. Some think it means communion. You know, they've been enlightened. They've, uh, and some say enlightened means you got baptized and then you've tasted the gift of communion. I don't think that's what he's talking about at all. Uh, it's the sense of the blessings that come to those through the gospel. Uh, those who have tasted those blessings of forgiveness of sin, of reconciliation with God, of, 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 of fellowship with the people of God. Not that their sins were forgiven and they entered into real fellowship with God, but they began to taste and become aware of those realities. And they began to live as if those were real in their lives when they actually were not. Maybe they made a profession. Maybe they got baptized. Maybe they joined a church. By all appearances, they seemed like they drank deeply of the grace of God, but they merely tasted that heavenly gift. They did not drink of it. They did not they did not partake of it fully. Third thing it says, having shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, this certainly seems to indicate a real Christian. How can an unconverted person taste or share in the Holy Spirit? A couple of examples I would point you to in the Scriptures. First of all, in the Old Testament, King Saul. Right after Saul was anointed by the prophet Samuel, we read that uh, Saul, anointed to be the king, was met as on the road by a group of prophets. And it tells us that the, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul so that he prophesied along with the other prophets. And Saul gave many, many indications early in his reign that he was a godly man, a humble king, a faithful king. And yet we know that in time he departed from the faith entirely and it says that the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord departed from him. I don't believe that Saul was ever indwelt by the Spirit as a believer. I believe the Holy Spirit came upon him with that anointing to do the, the work of the king. But even, even having that outward, that, that, that outward influence of the Spirit, he didn't have a new heart. And ultimately Saul was lost, even though for a time it looked like he was genuinely converted. We see it's better in the life of Judas Iscariot. <clears throat> you remember Jesus spent an entire night in prayer before he selected the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples. One of them was a man named Judas Iscariot. And in fact, among the 12, Judas was trusted enough that he was given the purse. He carried the money for the group. And so he was considered a trusted disciple. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but Judas partook of the Lord's table, or the Lord's supper, the last supper. Jesus dipped the morsel and gave it to Judas. And Judas didn't leave to carry out his betrayal until after the meal and after the cup and the bread were given to the disciples. When Jesus sent the 12 out in ministry, he gave them authority over unclean spirits and they all cast out demons and they healed many who were sick. And when the disciples came back rejoicing that even the demons submitted to their name, there's no indication that one disciple, because they were going out two by two, there's no indication that Judas' partner said, Lord, I think we have a problem. In fact, when Jesus said on the, at the Last Supper, one of you will betray me, nobody looked and said, well, Judas, obviously, because we know what, no, nobody knew a thing. By all appearances, the 11 men who lived with Judas for three years believed him to be converted. You know, Matthew 7, 
We find this warning, verse 21 to 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but one who does only one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Please notice these are all what we might call charismatic manifestations. And we have those today who say these manifestations of spirit power are clear evidence of God at work. And Jesus doesn't say, no, they were all counterfeit. He doesn't address whether they did or not. He merely says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It doesn't matter what you did or didn't do supposedly in the name of Jesus. And it doesn't matter if somehow you were able to perform these, uh, these, these miraculous deeds of prophecy and casting out demons and mighty works, many mighty works. It doesn't matter, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. It's not Jesus saying, I used to know you, but you fell away. Never. You might have tasted the heavenly gift and you might have tasted the Spirit of God, but you never entered into a saving relationship with Christ. The fourth description is they have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Now, uh, again, it's like those who are represented by the, the, the seed that fell on rocky ground. It immediately bore fruit, and it, it says that uh, with joy they received the Word, but, but it had no root. It's, excuse me, that didn't bore, bear fruit. It sprung up. And, and Jesus said they received the Word with joy, but there was no root. And so it quickly withered. See, a person can sit under the most faithful and even powerful preaching of the Word of God. They can be thoroughly versed in the Scriptures. They can be uh, well-trained in the finer points of theology, even Reformed theology, and yet be unconverted. A number of years ago, a, a prominent professed Christian utterly departed from the faith. The man was a pastor, highly regarded and respected in Reformed circles, completely abandoned the faith. And I heard people ask, how would that be possible with the influences in that person's life and with all that God seemed to do through them? And again, just go back to Judas Iscariot. He was discipled personally by Jesus for three years. You don't get any better than that. And yet never converted. In John 6, Jesus, the, the crowd had, had, had received this, 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 this miracle, this miraculous uh, feeding of 5,000. They're coming to Jesus, clamoring for more bread. And he says, I'm the bread. You have to eat me and devour me or you won't have life. And that was too hard a saying. And it tells us that many of his disciples turned and left and followed him no longer. And Jesus turns to the 12 and says, what about you? Do you want to go his way as well? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And I want you to pay attention to what our Lord says next because it's very interesting. Okay, we've come to believe this and we're not going anywhere. And Jesus says, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. <laughs> what an amazing statement at such a pivotal time in his ministry. All these people departing. Lord, we've come to believe that you're the eternal, you're, you're the holy one of God. And Jesus said, that's because I chose you. And yet one of you, you're a devil, you were never converted. And I'm sure they're all 
what in the world is he talking about? They must have been perplexed. Certainly they were when he predicted that one would betray him. Now we all know it was Judas. And again, in the high priestly prayer in John 17, before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and was betrayed and arrested and crucified, he says, I have guarded them. He's praying for the disciples, the 12. He says, I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. But again, he was a devil from the beginning. Judas had tasted the goodness of the Word of God, but he never truly submitted his heart to that Word because he never received a new heart from the Lord, and he fell away. The fourth or the fifth experience that the writer of Hebrews appeals to or describes, it says they have, having tasted the powers of the age to come. You remember Jesus came and he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the age to come is breaking in on us even now. We are living between this already of the kingdom present and the not yet of its full benefit in our lives, which will come after the return of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. But the powers of that age to come that could indicate the miraculous signs that testified to the coming of Messiah. And again, I believe those miraculous signs were for a time before Revelation was completed in the New Testament, which then I believe that is the final revelation, and so there's no need for those signs any longer. But it could refer to those things, or it could refer to the kingdom itself, the power that it has to transform lives. So here we have this person. He professes to have entered into the kingdom. He professes to have faith in Jesus Christ. He professes, but he does not possess that faith. He does not possess that life in Christ. Now, a true Christian can be described in all five of these experiences, right? I mean, a real Christian has been enlightened, and he walks in the light even as Jesus is in the light. He has tasted of the heavenly gift, and he has drunk deeply. He's made it his own. He's shared in the Holy Spirit. He's indwelt by the Spirit. He's sealed by the Spirit for the day of redemption. He has gifts of the Holy Spirit. He walks in the Spirit, and he's filled with the Spirit. He's tasted the goodness of the Word, and he liked what he tasted. He submitted his life to it. And I've seen so many professed believers who claim to know a whole lot of Bible, but their hearts and their lives are not submitted to the Bible they know. They're still self-willed and self-centered and self-serving, and they're not surrendered to Christ The real Christian has tasted the goodness of the word. He's tasted the powers of the age to come, and he set his heart upon heaven. And these realities have brought genuine transformation to his heart and to his life. But the unconverted man can appear to be converted, even while he's not. And that's what we're describing here with these five descriptive terms. So we have, first of all, this... this, this, this description of the benefits and the experience of this unconverted but professed believer who ultimately commits apostasy. So secondly, we find the declaration of their apostasy, verse 6. It starts out, remember in verse 4, it is impossible, and then it jumps to verse 6, and then a fallen way. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. Now, I'm not talking here about someone who simply stumbles into sin. I'm not even talking about someone who is backslidden for a season. We're talking about an absolute departure, one who abandons all pretense of faith in Christ. In spite of everything he has experienced, he lives 
as if those things had never taken place. It's not, I don't think it's so much describing the man in chapter 7 of Matthew where they come to the end of their lives and, and, and they've been living this, this lie and they, at the very end they're fully expecting, supposedly, maybe they're self-deceived. But they've, they've kept up the appearances the whole time. And yet they're workers of lawlessness. Uh, they haven't seemed to abandon the pretense of faith, but Jesus says, I never knew you. But here, it, it seems to be uh, one whose departure is visible. We see it take place. We see them abandon the faith and reject Christ outright. And, and we might scratch our heads and, and be amazed and say, how could such a thing happen to this person? The answer is most likely very gradually. William Hendrickson says, apostasy doesn't take place suddenly. It's part of a gradual process, a decline that leads from unbelief to disobedience to apostasy. If we recognize the person has never come to true belief in the first place, then unbelief becomes stronger and stronger, and ultimately they begin to cast off whatever external uh, pretenses and whatever external influences they are to live and act a certain way, and they wander and depart entirely. And Judas, again, is an example of that. Paul writes of Demas, who he says, because he loved this present world, abandoned him. In 1 John 2, 19, John says, they went out from us. Speaking of those who've departed, committed apostasy. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they were, they all are not of us. So John is saying here, if, if, if one commits apostasy, no matter what they did when they were in our midst, they weren't really truly of us. They might have, been, they might have joined for a time the visible church, but they were never part of the invisible, universal church, the true people of God for all time. So apostasy is not uh, an indication that a real Christian can lose his salvation. Apostasy is a sign that a person was never truly converted, no matter what his past experiences and performances might have indicated. Well, we've seen his experiences. We've seen the declaration of his apostasy. Thirdly, I want you to see the diagnosis of this person's hopeless condition. We return to that initial statement, is it impossible to restore them again to repentance? In Hebrews 12, the writer describes the sad case of Esau, whom he said he sold his birthright for a single meal, and selling his birthright was far more uh, symbolic. It's a metaphor of his inheritance from Christ. He sold his birthright for a single meal. And you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. His problem wasn't just with his father. His problem was with God. And we find that Esau was lost. Now, I want us to be very careful here. When we talk about it's impossible for one to repent. Jesus told his disciples that it's very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember the rich young ruler? Jesus said, uh, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. And the rich man uh, can't do it because he's too attached to his riches. And Jesus turns to his disciples. And he says how difficult it is for a wealthy man or a rich man to enter the kingdom. Well, that took them as quite a shock because 
they had grown up believing that riches and that wealth were an indication of God's blessing. And if a rich man can't be saved, then they said, well, well, who then can be saved? And you know our Lord said, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. So the writer of Hebrews states the impossibility of repentance in the case of one who falls away. But remember, it's one who was never truly converted in the first place. It's one who merely gave that appearance. But a key point here, and this is, we must remember this, repentance is a gift of God. It's not something that you and I can manufacture in and of ourselves. One of Satan's strategies is to convince you that you can sin now and repent later to convince you that that's okay, that you can manage your own sin and you can manufacture your own repentance. And we find here, do not be cavalier about sin. Don't think you can simply plan to repent at a later date when you feel like it. Because the natural man doesn't have within his ability to manufacture repentance. This is a serious warning against the sin of presumption to presume I can live as I please and straighten it out with God later. Don't be deceived. Don't don't harden your heart with unbelief and believe that you can then turn around and soften your own heart. J.C. Ryle wrote a very helpful article on on repentance. And you just, if you Google J.C. Ryle repentance, it'll come up. Five marks of repentance. And two of the marks, one was a genuine sorrow for sin and another of the marks was a deep hatred for sin. Now, the others are confessing sin, turning from it, being done with it, uh, and returning to the Lord. But this deep hatred, and the question is, how can you decide you're going to start hating something which you just loved? If you were looking to sin to bring fulfillment into your heart, how can you suddenly decide, I'm now going to hate it? I'm now going to be grieved and sorrowful for that which I took pleasure in earlier. See, repentance is a sovereign gift of God. He is the one who gives repentance. And the idea that you can somehow manage your sin and manufacture your own repentance, it's, 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 it's unbiblical. Now, you might stop and say, Pastor Jamie, I, I have a loved one, a sibling, a, a child, a parent, a friend, whatever, and they profess faith in Christ for a time. And they really seem to be real, and they've departed. They're gone. And I'm praying that God would restore them. Should I not even pray that? Is it impossible that they, they could repent and, 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 and return? My answer is, while there is breath, there is hope. And while that person, it would be impossible for them to manufacture and renew their repentance, with God all things are possible. So yes, pray. Yes, hope. Yes, appeal. Yes, reach out. Yes, witness. While there is breath, there is hope. With man, it is impossible. With God, All things are possible. The purpose of this text is not to crush our hope for those we love, but it's to warn us against the sin of presumption. Because apart from the powerful work of God, it is hopeless. So we pray. Let's talk about the reasons that he gives for that hopelessness. In verse 6, we read, It's impossible to do them to repentance. Why? Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up, to contempt. 
Now, this doesn't mean when he says crucifying the Son of God to their own harm, it doesn't mean they're nailing Jesus back to the cross literally, obviously. Jesus died once for all and said it's finished. But it was the sins of men, it was our sins that are the reason that Jesus went to the cross in the first place. And I've heard songs that talk about it was my sins that, you know, nailed him and so forth. And, and I'm a little reluctant to be that direct, but at the same time, there's a callousness about those who took up the hammer and drove those nails into his hands. There was a callousness and a coldness to those who stripped him naked and beat him and those who mocked him and spat at him while he hung there exposed, suffering on the cross. There was a coldness and a callousness to those who called for his crucifixion and who cheered at his suffering and his misery. And what we read here is to their own harm, not to the harm of Jesus, but to their own harm, they're embracing that same callousness as if they were taking that hammer and nailing it through the hands of our Savior once again. That same cold, hard-heartedness, that utter disregard and contempt for our Lord. And it says, in fact, they're holding uh, the Son of God up to contempt. Their departure from the faith is a declaration to the world, Jesus is a fraud. That's what they are saying. It's not true, but that's what they are saying, right? That Jesus is not who he really claimed to be. He did not really do what he said he came to do. He did not rise from the dead, and serving Jesus is not worth it. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, we above all men are most to be pitied. And they're saying, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and people who follow him and believe that are all the biggest losers in the world. That is the testimony of the one who departs from the faith. I was on the inside and I got the inside scoop, and it's all nonsense. They're holding Jesus up to contempt. But we know that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. We know that he fully accomplished everything that he came to do. We know that he did die to pay for our sins, that he did rise victorious over sin and death, that he has ascended into the heavens, that he now is dwelling on a, a throne of grace where we can boldly approach and receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Serving Jesus truly is worth it. And he came to give us life, eternal life, abundant life. And the person who has departed from the faith, who's, a, who's truly apostate, he believes he's too clever to fall for such a deception. But in the reality, he is the one who's deceived to his own eternal destruction. Then we have this illustration here. In verses 7 and 8, land that has drunk the rain, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who's first, uh, for whose sake it's cultivated, receives a blessing from God. <clears throat> but if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and is, its end is to be burned. So you have, <clears throat> uh, again, the writer's returning, or excuse me, you, you have these two types of people. They both receive abundant rain. And that represents the blessings of God, things like the heavenly gift and the word of God and all those blessings that are described in our earlier verses, verses 4 and 5. And some receive these blessings, and in response, they bring forth a useful crop. They bear fruit. Jesus said, it's my Father's will that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. But he said, if you bear no fruit, you're going to be cut off and burned. 
There's nothing new here in Hebrews that Jesus didn't say in John 15. So there's some who receive this blessing and they bear fruit. They bear fruit and they receive the blessing of God, which is eternal life. But there are others, they, they receive these blessings, the rain falls, but all they bear is thorns and thistles, sin, a useless crop, and their end is to be burned. They, they are rejecting Christ to their own harm. And the stark verdict is it's hopeless. It's hopeless for those who abandon the faith. But then we return to verse 9. There's a hopeful reassurance to the people of God. He says in verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, and he's coming back to the second person. It's not these vague uh, somebody out there kind of people. In your case, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. In other words, he's very hopeful that this this, this, this apostate person, this unconverted person who pretends to be a believer for the time but ultimately departs, he's very hopeful that that's not the case of any who are reading this epistle. As your pastor, I'm hopeful that that's true of everyone here who professes faith in Christ. I'm hopeful that every single member at Grace Baptist Church is truly converted. That's my hope, my expectation, things that accompany salvation. But the reality is we can't see into the heart of men. And there have been people I've known for, uh, in years gone past that, that truly seemed to be real and ultimately proved not to be. We see real fruit and, and we have reason to hope. But we can't be ultimately sure of another person's heart. The only proof is they persevere to the end. You bring forth fruit now and you continue and persevere to the end. And a true Christian will because God will preserve him to the end. But if he ultimately falls away, it's because he was never converted in the first place. So let me, let me draw just a few concluding points. First of all, this text is about the danger of presumption. And don't dismiss this out of hand and go, oh, oh that, that could never happen to me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. He tells us, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. And the expectation is you'll pass the test. But as believers in Jesus Christ, faithful servants of Christ, we ought to engage in self-examination. I'm not talking about uh, uh, constant navel-gazing that's questioning every shred of faith in our lives. Because you can, you, can, uh, you can analyze away your faith and find yourself in a place of tremendous doubt and losing all assurance if you're looking only at your own failures and not looking to Christ. But we ought to engage in healthy self-examination. But secondly, in those areas where we fall short, and we're going to find them if we look, if you look carefully at your own life, you're going to see many, many evidences that you're falling short. You're going to see failures. You're going to see sin. And our hope is not in our own perseverance. It's in the preserving grace of God. We have these commands and we have these warnings to, to spur us on to persevere, and the real Christian will persevere. But our hope is not in our ability to persevere. It's, in the rooted, it's rooted in the promises of God that he will preserve us to the very end. So is your faith in yourself, is your faith in your own faith, 
Is your faith in your own obedience? Or is your faith in Christ who saves his people? Now, there are sincere Christians who struggle with assurance of salvation. Some who are fearful, maybe I've committed the unpardonable sin. This is my deep conviction. If you're afraid you've committed the unpardonable sin, you haven't. Because if you've committed the unpardonable sin, you don't care. The person who's concerned that he might have, that concern is the evidence that he has not, whatever that unpardonable sin is. And I think it's a sin of apostasy. I think it's an, it's an absolute departure from Christ. But there's debate about that. But I think I can say very confidently, if you're concerned that you have sinned away your day of grace, that concern is evidence that you have not. When, he's, when he speaks here in Hebrews 6 of the apostate who holds the Son of God in contempt to his own harm, the person who's concerned about his own assurance, he wants Christ. He doesn't hold Jesus in contempt. He wants Christ. He just doesn't feel like he could find him. So it's important there that we understand what is the biblical basis for assurance? Uh, you know, uh, I want to know that I know that I'm in Christ. I want to walk with that, that confidence. Paul, uh, we, Paul tells us that, that, that we can walk with joy and with confidence and rejoicing. Uh, in Hebrews, we read that we're to hold on to our confidence. And you might be say, I say, Pastor Jamie, I, I don't even know how to get that confidence. I, I, I've put my faith in tr- Christ. I'm trying to follow him. But I, I wrestle with assurance. How do I gain it? Maybe you were taught that a decision that you made is the telling point. On a certain date, you made a decision to follow Jesus. You prayed a prayer. You walked an aisle. You got baptized. You, you went through the, you jumped through the, 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 the evangelical hoops, so to speak. And maybe a, a, a preacher said, if you'll take your Bible and turn to the back and write the date of your conversion, the date you came to know Jesus, write your date, that date down, I came to know Jesus, sign it. And every time you have doubts, from here forward, you look in the back of your Bible at that date. No. You look at the parts that God wrote, not the parts that you wrote, to gain assurance. Our confession is a tremendous help here, all right? The confession of faith has an entire chapter called Assurance of Grace and Salvation. It's chapter 18 in the confession. If you you can have a copy, or you have, hopefully have a copy of our confession. It's in the back of the hymnals there. The Westminster Confession, it's the same words. But it's, it, it spells out for us three bases or three criteria for assurance of salvation. It's like a three-legged stool, all right? Except with a three-legged stool, you cut out one leg, it falls over. That's not the case here. Right. But the three types of assurance, and it doesn't use these three words, but this is what they mean. The first is propositional assurance. It's, it's assurance that's based on the sure promises of God. Jesus said, all who trust in me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. Whoever believes in me will have eternal life. I, I see these propositions, these promises of Scripture. I believe them to be true. I believe them to be true about me. That's propositional assurance. Right? The second leg of the stool is what we might call immediate assurance. That's that immediate sense, I am a child of God. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are sons of God, we read in Romans chapter 8. And there's that immediate sense of the presence and the reality of Christ in my life. 
And we all want that. And sometimes when that is lacking, we suddenly think, maybe I'm not a Christian after all. An immediate assurance is a wonderful blessing. And then the third is called mediate assurance. That's where we look at the fruit of faith, the fruits of grace in your life, those evidences that the, uh, bringing forth fruit and so proving to be his disciples. Is there something in your life that you cannot explain naturally? Graces and characteristics that you never ever would have cared about and you certainly wouldn't have worked to develop in your life, but it's an evidence of God at work in your life. Now the danger with this one is you're still going to see some places of fruitlessness, and you're still going to see some thorns and thistles. And if, if that's all you look at, you can conclude that, oh my. And in all three cases, we can undercut our assurance, or we can lack assurance. And the confession is super helpful here, because it says a real Christian can labor for some time without having any sense of assurance at all, and yet still be a believer. But through the persevering in the ordinary means of grace. In other words, you don't need God to zap you with some new revelation. Through the, in persevering in the ordinary means of grace, God will restore that assurance in due time. And I find that statement to be tremendously helpful and hopeful. So I, I commend it to you. But our confidence is not in uh, some experience. But I, 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 I tasted the heavenly gift. I, 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 I rejoiced at the word of God. I sensed God moving and stirring, and I had these butterflies in my stomach, and I just thought something massive and transformative was happening, and I even wrote about it in the back of my Bible. The Scriptures tell us to look. What's going on right now in your life? Are you bearing fruit? Are you trusting in Christ? Are you repenting of sin? Is your hope in glory? Are you looking to uh, laying up treasures in heaven or here on earth? Not simply looking back at an experience that may have absolutely no impact on what is actually going on in your life right now, but looking at what is Christ doing now in my life and how is that bearing fruit to show the trajectory of my life is to glory that's an important basis for assurance. Jesus said in John 10, 28, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. We hear his voice, not audibly, but, but we know Christ has worked in us, and we follow him. And then he says, I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Our security is that he holds us in his hand, and we can never perish. Because we've heard his voice, and we hear his voice, and we follow, not just we did follow, we follow him. A true Christian is going to persevere to the end. And if he falls away, it's because he was never converted in the first place. So first of all, understand these realities, the danger of presumption. Secondly, recognize we're always going to see areas that we have not arrived. We're always going to see areas where we fall short and we just go back to the cross. We go back to Christ and we come to him for forgiveness and we come to him for assurance. It's a wonderful blessing that ought to be part of our regular experience. Not a presumption, but a lively spirit-wrought assurance and hope. And that assurance is based on the work of Christ believing that work. He's given me faith to believe it. He's given me the spirit uh, inside that, that, that testifies, that cries out, Abba, Father. And by the way, in my own experience, that's most powerful 
when I'm in a place of distress. And it's very interesting. Twice we find uh, in, in Romans 8 and in Galatians, it speaks of this crying, Abba, Father. And it's, in both cases, it's a cry of distress. And there's something that happens when God squeezes you and you're, you, you, don't st- you don't have time to step back and say, what is an appropriate biblical and theological response? Just whatever's inside comes out, and what comes out is this desperate cry to my Father. What does that tell you? It can be a powerful indicator of the presence of the Spirit at work. And then finally, are you bringing forth fruit? Fruit that will last, fruit that will testify of the reality of Christ in your life. May God preserve us from presumption. May God stir us up to press on to maturity by His grace.